You know, I really am excited about church and I'm going to share a message today. I might share it fast and all, but I think that every time we come together as a church, the, the, the Lord t- tells us this, you know, the, you know, that He will build His church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Amen. How many of you believe that when we come together like that, it's not just about worship, it's not just about hearing the Word of God, but it is the fact that when we gather in this uh, manner, there is an authority that we carry to declare and to decree things to happen in the realms of the Spirit. Amen? Amen. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. Amen. So I want to just encourage us as we look into the Word of God, as we talk about these things, there is something that God wants to do in our midst that's going to be very real. Amen. Now, I want to speak this weekend about merciful warning, and I want to begin by showing you this little simple optical illusion. And in the picture that you're about to see is the picture of a tiger that's really, really obvious. But I want to say this, that there's one more tiger hidden within the picture. And I wonder if any of us can spot it. Now, of course, if you've seen this before, um, Praise God, okay? But I'm going to give us just five seconds to see if you can spot the second tiger within this picture. Five, four, three, two, one. How many of you saw the second tiger? Just lift up your hands, okay? A couple of you, you guys rank amongst the top 1% in uh, intelligence in the whole world. (laughs) Just kidding. But if I were to tell you that second tiger is not a physical picture of a tiger, but the word tiger, look again, five seconds more. Can you find the word tiger there? I believe many more of you will begin to see the word tiger uh, scribbled uh, with the stripes on the hind legs of the tiger itself. Amen. And what I want to illustrate for us is this, right? That initial. Okay, somebody smart did that. What I want to illustrate for us is this, right? That, that when I told you to find a second tiger, many of us can't find it because we're looking for another physical uh, image of a tiger. But then all of a sudden, when I tell you that it is not a physical image, but the word tiger, many more of us will begin to see it. And it's because there is a shift in our focus of what we are looking for. Amen. Now, this is true not just for optical illusions, but it's, got, it's true also for the problems, the issues that we face in our lives. If we change our perspective a little, what might seem to be a cadaver, a catastrophe or a crisis may turn out to be uh, an opportunity instead. Now, when it comes to the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, this is especially true. It is so important for us to discern the um, perspective from which we are looking or else we don't, we don't truly understand what God is giving and speaking to us from His Word. Now, New Chapter 20 is a parable of the wicked vine dressers, and I think this, is, this holds true, especially for this parable. And the reason we don't see it uh, properly is because our perspective tends to be centered around ourselves. There is a certain self-centeredness. There is a certain uh, uh, view that we uh, adopt that often comes and, and from ourselves and instead of adopting the perspective of the divine. Amen. And yet, I want to say this, that the Word of God is really focused not on us, but upon the Lord. Amen. And I want to help us see this. So let's look at Luke chapter 20. I want to read to us verses 9 to verses 17, the whole parable. And I promise you that you might be really surprised at what this parable really is talking about. In verse 9, it begins by saying this, Then he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. 
A certain man planted a vineyard, leased at divine dresses, and went into a far country for a long time. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to divine dresses that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But divine dresses beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him again, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him and uh, also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned amongst themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come, destroy those vine dressers, and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written, the stone which the builders rejected? has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, for they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. I want to begin by giving us the backdrop to this parable, because this backdrop is going to really affect the way in which we understand this parable. Therefore, I'm going to take some time uh, to unpack this for us. And before that, again, I want to explain to us why I do this. Many times in my messages, you know, I take quite a bit of time to give us some peripheral knowledge and understanding about the context, about the days in which Jesus lives in, and I do it intentionally. People have come up to me and said to me, hey, Pastor you know, can you be simpler? Or not? Why is your message so cheap, you know? Why is it so complicated? The reason is because I'm a very complicated person, okay? And um, people have told me that they've had to listen to my message two times, three times to understand it. I'm so grateful to those of you who have taken the time to listen to it two, three times to understand it. But I'm sure there are people who listen to it once and say, I don't know what this guy is talking about. And I apologize for the complexity and at the same time, I do not ap- apologize for it. I want to ex- tell you why. Because, you know, as pastors here, one of the things that we consider all the time is that someday we're all going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and He's going to judge us for our works. And the evidence of our works is you. God is going to look at you guys and He's going to judge us pastors. Did you train the people to pray? Do they know my word? Do they love my word? Have they made a stand for me? Have they preached the gospel? Have you raised them up in accordance to how I want you to raise the people up? And the last thing I want is that, you know, for the whole church, we want is for the church to stand before the Lord and all of you don't know the Bible. Jesus asked you to quote John 3.16 and oh, what, what, what's that, you know? Or something like that, okay? And this is our responsibility. You see, the thing for us is that we really want to raise Christians and, and followers of Christ who do know the Lord themselves. You see, your feeding is not meant to be just Saturday, Sundays, whereby you starve spiritually from Monday to Friday and then Saturday and Sunday you come to church hoping to be fed spiritually. Our greatest joy is when you are able to feed yourself spiritually Mondays to Fridays, where you understand the Word of God, you love the Word of God, and God speaks and gives you revelation. I promise you as pastors, we will not feel jealous in any way or threatened in any way, but we will rejoice the day that you guys have deep revelations of your own and then you understand the Word of God. That is why I go through all the trouble of researching these things and sharing these things because I want to set for us a basis and a foundation in which you then can study the Word of God for yourselves. Amen? 
I'm telling you that there are beautiful nuances, connections, parallels between the Old Testament and New Testament poetry. There's beauty that is we from beginning to the end. There's something absolutely wonderful in the Scriptures and I want to hopefully give us an, an, an invitation to discover and to know the Lord from His Word. Amen. So again, let me get back into the, the parable and talk a little bit about the background. The background of this parable, the giving of this parable, begins with the triumphant entry where Jesus enters Jerusalem in the final week of his life, a final time he's going to enter Jerusalem. Now this is not just any entry, this is, this is an important prophetic moment that is foretold in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms 118 verse 22 to verse 28. Let's take a look at it. The, to, verse 22 says this, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, referring to Christ. This was the Lord's doing, the angels declared. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now. And of course, the Savior is coming. I pray, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord. He has given us a light that is Christ. Bind the sacrifice with cords, which is Christ, the sacrificial lamb, to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. You see, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was welcomed with this psalms. The people cried out, blessed is the Christ who comes in the name of the Lord. This is to give us evidence that the one who is entering is the Messiah. It places importance in the parable that is going to be given to us. You see, within a few days after his welcome, Jesus is going to be rejected. He's going to be sacrificed, crucified, and yet Christ will become the fulfillment of that sacrificial lamb, the sacrifice, and he will become the chief cornerstone. This is the context. As Jesus goes uh, enters into Jerusalem, the very next thing that he does is that he goes into the temple and there he disrupts the ordinary business that is going on in the days of the temple together with his disciples. Can you imagine this? They went around, they overturned the tables of the money changers. They chased the animals out of that common court uh, courtyard of the temple and then they barricaded the entrances to the temple ground from, being, from continuing to be the thoroughfare through which the businesses were traversed through. That day, the things that usually happen in the temple could not happen. Probably the morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice did not take place because Jesus and his disciples made a nuisance of themselves and barricaded the whole area from the daily routine business that was going on. This was a massive provocation against the religious establishment that threw them into fury. Something of the religious hypocrisy, the facade was pierced that day. Many Bible scholars agree that this act of Christ declared the obsolescence of the temple worship and condemned the temple to be destroyed by God. Because by the end of the day, Jesus left the temple and the very next day, the temple reverted back into his place of commerce. Jesus would not would declare that I would not stand for such to be a place of worship for the Lord. From henceforth, God would seek and establish those who worship Him in spirit and in truth in everywhere upon this earth. Amen. And then the religious authorities come to Jesus and they question Him on whose authority dare you to do this? Who gave you the authority to disrupt things this way? Jesus in turn asked them, Who's, by what authority did John baptize the people? They refused to answer. Jesus refused to answer them. And then this parable is told. 
And so we come into the parable, and I want to begin by saying this to us, that the climax, the focal point of the parable is not at the end of the parable, but it is in the center. Because of our training, because of the way that we are accustomed to looking at things, we are trained to see things in a linear fashion. And so when we read this parable, our first impression is that the climax of parable is at the end, in which judgment is declared over the vine dresses. We think that this parable is all about the vine dresses. We think that it is about God getting rid of these evil people and establishing His righteousness. And we like that perspective because that's a perspective that we can relate to. Who doesn't love a good story on on vindication. You know, look at the wicked ones, look at the ones who are doing evil. Oh, to see them being judged, to see them being gotten rid of. We all love an account like this. But let me tell you this, that that's not the focal point. When you study the structure of this parable, the structure of the parable itself is circular and the climax is in the centre. The focal point is not the vine dresses. The focal point is the landowner. The climax is presented as a soliloquy in which the landowner speaks aloud to himself saying, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they'll respect him when they see him. It is this self-conversation, it is this moment where the landowner speaks aloud his thoughts that is the key and the climax and the point of this parable. And I want to explain that to us by telling us, the, by giving us a reenactment of the parable. Amen? Now, I don't know how you see this parable, but I've read this parable many times. And every time I've read this parable, i found this parable to be somewhat unsatisfying and unbelievable. Why? Think for a moment. The vine dresses had progressively become more and more violent towards the servants that were being sent by the landowner. Amen? He sends the first servant, the servant's beaten up, and sent away empty-handed, as though that was not enough of a signal of who these vine dressers are. They, the landowner sends a second servant, and again, he's beaten up. Now, he's treated worse. They treated him shamefully. I don't know what they do. Maybe they strip him of his clothes. Maybe they shave his beard. Maybe they shave his head. Whatever it is, they sent him away again empty-handed. And still the landowner would not relent. He sends a third servant. And this time, not only does he, is he beaten up, he's wounded. Not only was he sent away, he was cast out. Each servant was subjected to a worse fate than the previous one. The, one, the vine dressers became more violent, more unrestrained and more blatant each time. And now suddenly the landowner decides of all things to send his beloved son. I don't understand this. Think about this. When Esau came to meet Jacob, he didn't know Jacob's intention, so he brought with him 400 men armed. When Abraham was going to recover his nephew, Lord, he went with 318 trained men who knew how to fight. And yet with the recollection of humiliation, of violence, of physical abuse fresh in his mind, the landowner somehow decides to send his own beloved son. That doesn't make sense. He sends him off with no escort not with a contingent of soldiers, unarmed to go meet this most vicious man. Now, if there's one way to describe it, it would be to say that it is outrageous stupidity. It is to send his own beloved son to certain death. It's as though he was condemning his own son to death. But, because, but precisely because this is so unreasonable, it really drives us to need to take a closer look at this landowner. Is he rich? Yes, he is. He's a landowner. Is he powerful? Absolutely. And not only that, he's well able to retaliate with 
equal or greater violence. The parable indicates that he had the ability to instantaneously remove the vineyard from these vine dresses. And yet somehow he does not do that. Can I suggest this to us? If any of us were dishonored, ill-treated, violated in this manner, and if we had the ability to react immediately and give, you know, an, an, an exact, you know, immediate consequence on the perpetrators, would we not all do it? Amen. Just think about it this morning as you're driving here on the highway, some car cut you in and took over your slot. Guess what? In your mind, you're thinking, if I had the ability to teleport this car behind me again, I would do it immediately. Right? I mean, we all have had these imaginations before and the reason we don't do it is because it's not within our capacity to do it and yet it is within the capacity of this landowner to put things right immediately, but yet somehow he does not do it. The landowner did not allow the actions of the wicked to deviate him from his nature. As we look at this parable, there is something that is being expressed in the sending of the first, the second, third servant that we might not grasp. Why would this landowner send these servants over and over again? He persisted in sending them to persuade these men to repent. You see, each servant he sent was another opportunity for these people to turn back. There is something that's being exhibited about the long-suffering, the compassion, the kindness of this landowner who would do something like that. Because if you're truly somebody who's ruthless, then after the first servants were sent, the second time, you would not be sending a servant. You would be sending a contingent of soldiers to get back what rightfully belongs to you. But something about the nature of the long-suffering and the compassion is being quietly exhibited to us throughout the beginning of this parable. And then all of a sudden, this landowner is going to do something that goes beyond that. He's going to do something supremely noble. Now, to help us understand this, I want to recount to you uh, what is believed to be a true incident. And this is orally circulated by various people, not just by the Arab people, but by the US uh, people that were working in Jordan in those days. And this is an oral account of something that took place in the life of the late King Hussein bin Talal, the King of Jordan. You see, in the evening of early, in the early 1980s, the King was informed by security uh, police that a group of about 75 Jordanian army officers were at that very moment meeting in a nearby barracks, plotting a military overthrow of the king. The security police, who had the ability to do so, requested for permission to surround the barracks and to arrest the plotters and to kill them if necessary. After a moment of pause, the king refused. And instead, he asked for a small helicopter to fly him to the barracks upon landing on the flat roof. He said to the pilot to keep his engine on. And then he gave these instructions to the pilot. He says, if you hear gunshots, please immediately fly yourself to safety without me. Having given those instructions unarmed, the king then walked down two flights of stairs into the building and appeared in a room where he surprised the plotters and he began to speak to them. He said to them, gentlemen, it has come to my attention that you are meeting here tonight to finalize your plans to overthrow the government, take over the country and to install a military dictator. If you do this, the army will break apart, the country will be plunged into civil war, tens of thousands of innocent people will die. But I'm here to tell you that there is no need for you to do this because here I am, just kill me and proceed. That way only one man will need to die. There was an absolute moment of silence. Nobody moved. Nobody did anything. And then all of a sudden, in unison, the rebels stood up and they rushed forward towards the king. And to the king's surprise, they began to kiss the king's hands and his feet. And they all pledged loyalty 
to him for the rest of their lives. You see, what King Hussein did was he chose nobility. He chose self-sacrifice. He chose to act in a manner that would stir the courts of honour in the rebels' hearts because he knew that that was far more powerful in the same way the landowner thought likewise in this parable. He says, let me perhaps send my beloved son. Then they will see and they will be shamed by their actions. Maybe when I send my first my servant, they didn't recognize it. They didn't see the olive branch of peace and reconciliation and repentance that I'm extending to, do, to them. Maybe the second servant I sent didn't express who I am to them as well as could be. Or maybe the third servant, still the message didn't go through. But you know what? If I send my very own son, they will see how serious I am about giving them one more chance to repent, giving them one more opportunity to continue to steward this vineyard that I've given to them, to give them one more opportunity to continue onwards in the ministry that I've given to them. You see, here's the profound unveiling of the nature of this landowner. You see, this is why this is the climax of the parable. The parable is about the Lord and the landowner is God. And God has sent prophets after prophets to Israel and to the leadership of Israel and some that beaten, some they have treated shamefully, others they have cast into prison and still others they have killed. And yet despite all of this, God is choosing not to deviate from his character and his nature. And in his heart, he says, let me send my son, my very own son, my only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that they might listen to him. There is a word that is being used here in, this, in these scriptures, which is the word makrothymia, thymia. This is a Greek word for which there is no adequate word in English to fully describe what this word actually means. In its literal form, this word means to put one's anger far away. But even then, it is lacking in the, whole, uh, in the fullness of what this word means. Just like the nobleman in the parable, God the Father puts his anger far away. And not only that, he opts for total vulnerability in the face of violence, defiance and rebellion from his very own people, his very own creatures. And instead, he chooses to send his only son, Jesus Christ. And when the son comes, the son embraces the same makrothymia as the father does. And Jesus chooses to empty himself, to embrace the cross and to reject the option of deliverance for he could have called angels to come and deliver him. And yet he held his tongue and remained on the cross to lay his life down to make salvation available to all. You see, this is the point of the parable. This is the magnificence of this parable. It is nothing to do with judgment. It is nothing to do with satisfying our petty needs for vindication. It is not about the vine dresses or the judgment that is to come, but instead it is to give us a glimpse of the nature of our God, the long-suffering, the kindness, the makrothymia that He's expressing to every one of us. His willingness after being rejected to continue to take humiliation, to suffer loss and constantly respond in vulnerability and to sacrifice even His very own Son, Jesus Christ. This is what this parable is about. We need to shift our attention, our focus to understand that this is a parable in which we may gaze upon and out of that gazing, our knees would fall to the ground and we would worship this incredible God and the nature He's displaying to us. I want to say this, as we behold this glory of whom the Father is, the question remains, what should our response be? Do we gaze on His magnificence and walk away without contemplating what that 
glory that's been revealed to us now demands upon us. You see, when you see something of His magnificence, you cannot walk away without understanding that now God is placing a demand upon your life to respond. We got to respond, and what is the response to it? It should change the way we examine, you know, the things that happen to us, the injustices, the wrongdoings. I'm saying this because every one of us have been offended before. Every one of us have been unjustly dealt with before. I remember when I was a young Christian, just newly born again, I was so enthusiastic about the gospel. I would go around sharing the gospel with people. And in my immaturity, in my new birth, I didn't understand who God was or who God is. And there were people that rejected me and the gospel, and not just they rejected, they would laugh at me, and yeah, you're God, and they would insult the, the Savior that I serve. And I remember I would get so angry, I would say, I shake the dust off my feet, may you be condemned to hell forever. That's what I used to say as a young Christian to people. And I'm telling you, this doesn't just infect young Christians, it infected the apostles as well because there was a time when Jesus is walking through this village and the people so reviled him, so rejected Jesus. I'm telling you, they didn't just say, Jesus, don't come. They would spit at him, they would laugh at him, they would cast stones at him. I mean, they would chase him out of the village and the, the apostles were so angry, they said, let us call fire down and destroy all these people. And yet God said, no, you do not understand what spirit you are of. I did not come to condemn, to destroy, but I came to save. Amen. There is something about the revelation of the glory of God that is revealed to us from His Word that should call us to action, to examine our own response to the things that are happening in our lives. I want to ask us to examine our own brand of Christianity. Is our Christianity convenient, comfortable, and within our means and ability to fulfill? Or does it place an extreme demand upon us whereby we are challenged to our faces by, the by a glimpse of the glory of God and we say, hey, I need the grace of God to do this. I need the grace of God to exhibit the same macrothymia that my Father exhibits. Amen. I want to challenge us today. I want for us to gaze again on the Father's face according to the Word of God as has been revealed to us. I want us to look again at this parable and see something about the God that you serve and believe in and the God that I serve whom I believe in. And what is the challenge that is placed upon us? The Apostle James says this, that faith without works is dead. Is our faith empty? Whereby we walk out of this place and we are mean, we are unpleasant, we are entitled and demanding. Or do we walk out of this place broken? The Lord said this, if you fall on the stone, on the rock, you will be broken. But if the stone falls upon you, you will be crushed. What would you choose? What would you do in the face of this? The amazing thing about the, the priests, the scribes and the Pharisees is they heard this parable and they didn't understand it. They saw it as judgment instead of a final appeal from God to them to say, I'm giving you one more chance. I'm giving you another chance. Would you respond? Would you return to me? Amen. You know, I want to bring this to a close and I'm going to ask um, uh, our worship leader to come up.
And I want to ask us just for a moment to worship the Lord. Amen. I think that whenever we catch a glimpse of who God is, it really demands for us to worship Him. You know, the, the angels, the elders, they fall down face, they fall face down before the Lord all the time, crying out, holy, holy, holy. Every time there's a revelation of the holiness and the glory of God, they fall down in worship. And I want to encourage us to worship the Lord, to see and to behold His glory as He reveals it to us in His, in His Word. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. As we're standing to our feet, I want to ask us to bow our heads, close our eyes. I wonder if there are people who are in this place today that you are far away from God. And I don't mean that you don't come to, you come to church, you go to cell group, but somehow in your heart, you know you're far from Him. You've not heard His voice for some time. You've been running your life at your own pace, pursuing one thing after another. You're tired. There is no refreshing that is happening in your life and you sense the emptiness of it. But I want to say this to you, that God is not angry with you. God is not out to destroy, to condemn. But just as He extended His grace to divine dresses and He sends His servants, His own Son, I believe God wants to send a message to us today to restore us back into a walk with Him. Amen? And I'm not talking about people who are backslidden. I really am not. I confess that many times I go through seasons like that where I'm busy about many things but I'm not spending time with God. Amen? And the voice of God is silent in my ears. I'm not getting any revelations. But I want to encourage us, if that is a place that you're in, it can end today. The Bible says that if you draw near to Him, He'll draw near to you. The moment you turn your eyes and your gaze towards Him, God will restore the joy of our salvation. He'll restore His presence upon us. Amen. The psalmist says, cast me not away from thy presence. There's something about the presence of God that He wants to fill our lives. He wants to be with us. He wants to speak to us, God. And God wants to restore that in us every head bowed and every eye closed, if that is you, I want to ask you to raise your hands, not to me, but to the Lord. And I believe that as you raise your hands to God, God will come and God will refresh. God will unclog the wells in your heart. And God will cause a refreshing to come into your lives right now. If you are that person, if you are there, I want to encourage you to lift up your hands to the Lord right now and let God satisfy you let Him fill the need that is there inside of you. Amen. Because He longs to fill it. He longs to satisfy us. And I'm going to ask um, our worship leader just to lead us in one song. I think that um, there's a song that we sang just now, Worthy. And I, I, I just feel like we, I want to sing that song one more time. And we just want to tell Him that He is worthy. Amen. Amen. Let's worship Him together. just listen to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.